0: This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. noticed that for the overwhelming majority of people, uh, one eye looks bigger? Did you ever notice this? Um, one eye looks bigger than the other for the overwhelming majority of the human population. And it's, it's because for most, one eyelid is slightly more open than the other. That's a reality. Look closely at people and you'll see it. Um, usually we don't notice it, but if we look closely at just about everyone, we'll see it. It's kind of a, a crazy phenomenon. Uh, typically, when we look at someone else, uh, what we see is a face that's pretty much symmetrical. It's balanced. The left side mirrors the right side, but that's really just an illusion. It's just an illusion. Um, most people's faces, once you look closely, are not symmetrical. They're asymmetrical. They're not perfectly balanced. And of course, as we get older, uh, that tends to be more and more the case. Um, but the fact is, right, uh, this is the case for many things in life. There's much that's asymmetrical. I mean, have you ever been in a relationship where you give and give and give of yourself, but the other person in the relationship doesn't really contribute anything. It's not equitable. (laughs) It's not equal. Have you ever been in a school setting where a teacher seemed to play favorites? The treatment is not equal. Or on a team where the coach gives more attention to some players and not others. Or in a workplace where the boss or the administration shows greater kindness to this person or to that group than to this person or that group, right? Life is full of asymmetry, full of imbalance. And as I thought and thought about asymmetry this week, in our world and in our lives, I stopped and considered my emotions. Yeah, yeah. there's lots of emotional like asymmetry going on in this guy. Maybe you can relate. I don't know. I know you can. <laughs> um, I was thinking about how, look, as an educator, look, I spent my time this past summer uh, designing a class. And I was prepping for this class. And then I attended the class eight hours a day. And I taught the class. And I fielded questions from the students. And I graded work From the students, and I poured out my heart to these students. And at the end, the students who hadn't invested nearly, nearly as much time and effort as me, asymmetry, filled out course evaluations. Fourteen of them were incredible. These fourteen were so complimentary of me. So positive. Encouraging feedback. And then, then, there's one student who got twisted up over something I said and went on the attack on the course evaluation. And they gave me low marks on everything and they wrote in some hateful and nasty comments. 14 students with tons of positivity versus one student with lots of negativity, asymmetry, but the real asymmetry of that came afterward when for some reason the 14 students' positive remarks quickly vanished, and all I could think about was the one student's negative remarks. Asymmetry. Why is life like this? Why do we seem to focus so much on the negative? I know who's here every Sunday, but I also know who isn't. Who do you think I focus on? Who isn't? Why? Why are news broadcasts like 95 to 99% negative? I received a card from some students that I taught last week over in Kona on the Big Island. I was there teaching for a couple days on the Big Island. It was awesome. Over 20 positive comments on this card they gave me. But that day I received one text message from someone in a completely different area of life, and it was a negative text message. What do you think occupied the majority of my thoughts that day? The 20 positive comments on the card or the one negative text message? Yeah, you know. (laughs) Asymmetry, imbalance, and you can relate. Christy can make 10 meals, and I thank her each time but if she makes an 11th meal and I express even the smallest displeasure in it, my wife gets offended. (laughs) I'll stop there. Um, (laughs) uh, I can watch my kids play sports and they do many things right. But I notice a few of the little things they did wrong. Stop shaking your head. Um, And I I can get in the car and drive, and the drivers around me do hundreds, if not thousands of little things right. But as soon as some one idiot driver does something that negatively affects me that I don't like, it's all I notice. It's all I care about. And maybe you're thinking, Michael, you're just a negative person. Stop being so negative. Be a little more positive. No, 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 no. You don't get to do that. Because if we're honest, we're all like this. The science bears it out. We're all very, very similar. Linguists have studied this reality. So there's a survey taken of the world's languages. And linguists have found that languages of the world always bear more negative words in them than positive words. Across the board, asymmetry. It's been readily shown by psychologists that for humans, bad has stronger and more lasting effects than good. In fact, researchers have shown that for every one negative comment, listen to this, y'all need to know this, for every one Negative comment. Five positives are needed to balance things out. That's just a comment. And even then, that's not always going to happen because that one pos- that one negative comment can stick and ride. Findings show that one instance of abuse, like childhood uh, trauma, can stick around for a lifetime while many of the positive things that happened as a child fade. Uh, He was exaggerating, but in the 1300s, there was a writer named Petrarch, and he put it this way, a thousand pleasures don't compensate for one pain. And frankly, if we're all honest, deep down, we know that, don't we? It brings us to our word of the week. It's called the positive-negative asymmetry effect. I love this. This is the idea that negative experiences have stronger and longer lasting effects than positive ones. And One thing that this means is that we can't hop on society's positivity train and, and just simply send out good vibes and all will be well. We can't just force ourselves to be happy and in turn, the world around us will magically be better. It doesn't work that way. No part of the human experience works that way. No, the human experience, part of it, the the human condition is that negative experiences have stronger and longer lasting effects than positive ones. The positive experiences that you and I have tend to fade much more quickly than the negative ones, asymmetry. And this may not necessarily be a bad thing. If we're prone to being on the lookout for things that can hurt us physically or emotionally, if we're like tuned in to potentially hurtful words or potentially hurtful relationships, if we're dialed in to sort of watching for those kinds of things, it's a sign that we have some care for ourselves. We want to protect ourselves. We want safety. We may have such a heightened awareness of the negative because, at the end of the day, we want to avoid danger and be safe and protect ourselves. If we're if we're if we ignore potential hurt or potential danger and we just try to put on these fake positive lenses so we just don't see it, then we open ourselves up to actually being hurt repeatedly and unexpectedly. And as we approach Genesis again today, I think there's a sense in which all of the story of Genesis, but especially this part, has asymmetry written all over it. You can recall from last week that Jacob, he's on the cusp of leaving his uncle Laban's house, or levan His house is in this place called Haran. And he's been there for 20 years, Jacob. He's essentially been serving for 20 years as Laban's slave and he's gotten four wives out of it and about a dozen kids out of it, but he's also been repeatedly lied to and deceived and manipulated and taken advantage of, and now he's ready to leave, and so are his wives, Laban's daughters, Laban's own children. And prior to this, you remember, Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah (laughs) or the other wives, asymmetry. Leah had more children than Rachel asymmetry rachel was jealous of leah asymmetry and laban had taken advantage of his daughters and his son-in-law repeatedly asymmetry and so his daughters and his son-in-law they meet out in a field undercover and they plan their getaway without laban knowing an imbalance of knowledge, asymmetry. But there's more of where that came from. So we're going to see it as we enter into Genesis 31 today. We're picking up at verse 19, and it says this. Now, Laban, or in Hebrew, the right way to say this is Levan. Okay, that's going to make sense later. But um, Now, Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole the teraphim that were her father's. Okay, we'll talk about that. Jacob, check this out. Look at this. Rachel stole the teraphim that were her father's, and Jacob stole the heart of Laban, the Aramean. But he didn't tell him that he was fleeing, so he fled with all that he had. He rose up, he crossed the river, and he set his face toward the mountain of Gilead. Or Gilead. This family, y'all, is scandalous, Conniving right they're always doing everything in secret now i suppose there's a sense in which sometimes they had to but this is a wild way it maybe doesn't seem so wild just looking at it. this is a wild way to start the story rachel right she knows her daddy's routine she knows daddy laban's routine he's gonna go out and shear sheep and as soon as he does she takes advantage of his absence What does she do? She goes into his room or his space and she steals. Specifically, she steals her dad's teraphim. Teraphim are idols. That's what that means. This is a fancy word for idols. They can be large or small idols. Typically, these teraphim, they're carved in such a way that the god that the idol represents kind of looks like a human figure, has human features. So it would seem in this case that the teraphim are not that large because later we're going to find Rachel... She sticks them in a camel pouch and she, that she rides on, and she's sitting on them. This will become a huge sticking point later in the story. So, an important question is this, y'all. Why did Rachel steal her father's idols? Was she just being a vindictive little daughter? Um, was she just getting even? So I wonder, had she, she experienced a life of asymmetry? Of her dad using her, and was this a way of evening the score? Getting some balance back on the scales? Was the the teraphim, the idol, or idols, was it a souvenir so that maybe she wouldn't miss home when she left? Um, Like her going off to college, (laughs) think she's taking something from it. Was it, so her dad, maybe she was trying to protect her dad. If I take daddy's idol when I leave, he'll stop worshiping idols. It's like, if I take daddy's cigarettes, he'll stop smoking them, Right? Um, there was a belief that if one consulted an idol in prayer like this, that maybe the idol could tell the future. So did Rachel take the idols because they're getting ready to go on the run so that her father wouldn't be able to consult the idol and find them where they were traveling to? Uh, Sometimes a family idol actually could be reminiscent of a birthright. This was like the family heirloom. So when Laban was going to die later, like when Laban dies, the eldest son would receive the idol. And it's reminiscent of that birthright. And then he'd pass it on to the next son. Is Rachel robbing her brothers of the birthright, just like Jacob took Esau's birthright? A match made in heaven? Are they that much alike? So from my vantage point, right, I think she takes the idol, the teraphim, because she thought they would bring her fertility blessings. I think uh, more than likely, this god or this idol uh, represented a local fertility goddess that was around our area in the ancient world. Um, the goddess's name was Astarte or Ishtar. And she was a fertility goddess. And this is in this instance, Rachel, she's already pregnant. And we know, given the Mandrake story, right, that she probably had some superstitious tendencies. She was willing to try whatever, And later, when her dad tries to find these idols, we learn that she's sitting on them. That is, they're hidden near her female region, right? And perhaps this was a means of helping her fertility. But this action, it's going to have much more devastating consequences, way more than she can imagine. It's going to end her life. That's... You know, like, this is, I think, something actually that we can all relate to. Doing something that seems small or minor to us, and later down the road we find out the consequences are much greater than we ever could have expected. We we say something to someone and find out that it stuck with them for years. We said it maybe in fourth grade, and then somebody, we go back to our 20-year reunion, and somebody's like, you remember what you said to me? Uh, Yeah, that's stuck with me all these years. We do something, and then we learn that it affected someone's career or their well-being over the long haul. We we make a choice, and it has enduring consequences on a marriage or a relationship. We do something with our bodies, and it comes back to haunt us. We all know this reality, yeah? You notice what the text says, that, that Jacob steals the heart of Laban. There's some good Hebrew punning going on here. It's totally lost in English, but in Hebrew, Laban's name, as I said, is pronounced Levan. Levan. So the word for heart is Lev in Hebrew, and so Jacob stole the Lev of Levan. There's a lot of punning going on in this particular story. Laban, he's described, as you remember, as the Aramean, which is closely related to the word deceive. It shares the same root. So Rachel, she steals Laban the deceiver's idols and Jacob steals Laban the deceiver's heart by not telling him that the family is leaving. And because he doesn't tell him, Jacob knows that he has to hightail it. Jacob has to book it out of town. It says that he fled with all he had, that he got up and he crossed the river and he set his face toward the mountain of Gilead. Ever had to get out of a situation quick? Jacob, he's up in the north in Padan Aram of Haran. And he leads his caravan south to the place called Ramoth-Gilead, which is also a section of Aram. Now remember, as I just said, that Aram shares the same root as the word that means deceive. This is a land of deception, in other words. This is a land where deceiving goes down and deceiving happens. Right? So Genesis doesn't want us to forget that. Doesn't want us to forget that. It's also where portions of the Aramaic Aramaic language was spoken, which is very similar to Hebrew, by the way. Um, And later, in fact, in this very story, we'll see that Laban calls the area that Jacob is heading to by its Aramaic name. There's some Aramaic in Genesis. But Jacob's going to call it by its Hebrew name. And so this linguistic difference between Hebrew and Aramaic, between uh, Laban or Jacob who's speaking Hebrew and Laban who speaks Aramaic, it kind of puts a linguistic distance between them. The name of the game here is separation. They're trying. Jacob's trying to separate. Let's keep reading. It says this: Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled, and he took his relatives with him, and he pursued him seven days' journey he caught up to him on the mountain of Gilead. And God came to Laban the Aramean in the dream of the night and said to him, Take care that you don't speak to Jacob, either good or bad. Now that's interesting. Uh, Laban caught up with Jacob. And now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountain, and Laban with his relatives encamped in the mountain of Gilead. And so Jacob and all his wives and his children, the entire car- caravan, they were gone for three days before Laban even noticed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How can that be? That's about two dozen people at least, or more. They're all gone from the house. Like, when my kids are gone to school, I notice it, right? When they're home, I really notice it, Um, right? So I, I think this may be a clue that in a way, to Laban, they were invisible when they were around. He only saw them, you see, when he needed them. You follow? And I'll bet everyone in this room can relate to that for sure to that kind of experience that you feel invisible to someone until they need you, until they need your help, they need your money, your couch, your connections. And once they can get something from you, they reach out. But only then. If there's no need, they don't see you. You're invisible. You might as well not be around. You might as well be three days gone. They don't notice that you're gone, that you're not part of their everyday life. I think that's what's going on here. But once he does notice, he's incensed. He gets a caravan of his own and he starts to chase and pretty quickly he catches up. He's a taskmaster, right? We know that of him. He works his crew hard to catch up. And the night before he approaches Jacob's crew, Laban falls asleep and he has a dream and God shows up in the dream and he tells Laban, don't. Speak to Jacob either good or bad, which seems impossible. Either when you're speaking, you're speaking something good or bad. Maybe neutral, I don't know. But this is the, this is the same language, by the way, of, that was used in the garden back in the start of Genesis. Don't miss that connection. The knowledge of the tree of good and bad or good and evil, same words in Hebrew. The serpent spoke deceptively to Adam and Eve about good and bad or good and evil. And one has to wonder then if Laban is in a way being sort of connected back to that part of the story and portrayed as a serpent-like figure. I don't know, maybe. Let's continue. Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you've deceived me and carried away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me? and didn't tell me that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, with tambourine and harp, and you didn't allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you've done foolishly. It's in the power of my hand to hurt you. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful that you don't speak to Jacob either good or bad. Now, you want to be gone because you greatly longed for your father's house, but why have you stolen my gods? This is irony. It's thick. Laban is the Aramean, the deceiver in the text, keeps calling him that. So we're reminded of that. He's Laban the deceiver. And so the first thing that he does when he meets up with Jacob is what? He accuses Jacob of deceiving him. The same exact question, again, pointing back to the garden, that God asked Eve, same exact question, same exact words that God asked Eve when she ate. What have you done? And what does she do? She blames a serpent. It's the same question that Pharaoh in Genesis twelve eighteen asked Abraham after Abraham deceptively told him that Sarah was his sister. Same exact question. What have you done? And Abimelech, who Abraham also deceived asked the same exact question in 26:10, and very importantly, these are the same exact words that Jacob puts to Laban when Laban deceptively gives Leah to Jacob on that wedding night. Same exact question: What have you done? This is a somewhat common question in Genesis. Whenever deception is involved, it's the question to be asked: What have you done? And so here, Laban essentially takes Jacob's words and he uses them back on him. That sucks when that happens, doesn't it? Somebody uses your own words back on you? Mm. Um, It's like saying, "I I deceived you, Jacob. But remember when you asked, what have you done? Well, now it's your turn. What have you done? Laban, the deceiver, has been deceived and it's not very fun for him. He's gotten a taste of his own medicine and the taste is very bitter hard to swallow and so Jacob he dealt with it the whole Leah and Rachel wedding night fiasco Laban he's not dealing with it so much here asymmetry imbalance and he doesn't just accuse Jacob once you see look at the first verse and then second verse he accuses him of deception here twice And I began to touch on this in the previous message, but I want to make another point. If we go back just a few verses to Genesis 30, 17, we find a very simple verse, short verse. Jacob put his children and his wives on camels. These two pronouns are very, very important here. His wives, his camels. They're important because look at what Laban says in 27. He says, you didn't allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. You see what's happened. Pay attention to that. Laban views Jacob as such a slave that he considers Jacob's own wives and children as his own. He comes off as a real scumbag, a real manipulator. He can't take the separation that's happening. He has no one to oppress now. His world is out of balance. That's how it is for an abuser, yeah? The minute that they have no one to oppress or lord their power over, they start to fall apart. That's what happens. The world starts to crash in. All they can resort to is playing the victim. And that's what Laban does. Classic, classic. The abuser playing the victim card. Look at what he says in 27. I might have sent you away. I might have. I might have sent you away if you told me you were leaving. I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with tambourine and harp. Really? 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 Really, Laban the deceiver? You might have? You might have? No, you wouldn't have, right? Jacob had tried to leave before, if you remember back in the story, and Laban coaxed him into staying for six more years and taking care of the animals. There was no talk of a going-away party then, and there wouldn't have been this time either, had you known Laban, you'd have manipulated Jacob again trying to get him to stay because that's what abusers do. Once they know their victim might have an out, they'll do everything in their power to close that door, to stop it. They'll promise to change, to do better, to stop drinking, to be kind. They'll promise them the world. But give it a few days and it's back to the cycle of hell and oppression have thrown a party and Jacob knows it and that's why they chose to finally leave and that's why they leave undercover and just to let Jacob know what's up Laban threatens him I can imagine him look going in for a hug Laban going in for a hug on Jacob and whispering in his son-in-law's ear son you've done foolishly and as he grabs the back of his neck with his hand and pulls him closer with a tight grip he says you know I have the power in my hand to hurt you? Don't you know? And he loosens up a little bit. But the God of your father spoke to me last night and he told me to be careful. It's a threat. No bones about it. It's like an abused wife getting out and then being confronted by the abuser. Don't you know I can ruin you? Don't you know, honey, that I'll trash your name and your reputation around town? That I'll drain the bank account and you'll be the nobody that you truly are? Or you can come back home with me. We'll work things out. It'll all get better. And if that isn't enough, Laban launches another salt. Yeah, your God spoke to me in a dream. But if your God is so great, then why did you steal my gods? Huh? My teraphim, my idols, might they be greater than your daddy's God? That's a critical point we need to see here. Look at verse 30. Laban's common is, why have you stolen my gods? And think back just a few verses. We read there that Jacob stole, follow me here. This is really, really important to say. What does it say? Jacob stole Laban's Lev, that Jacob stole Laban's heart, you see. And here the same exact language is used when Laban speaks. He says, why did you steal my gods? In other words, I think we're meant to see this, that Laban's gods, his idols are his heart. Do you see? Yeah, yeah. Idolatry is a heart or a heart mind issue. The disposition or the posture of our heart reveals who we are or really who, what we love and what we worship. I I don't say this to guilt trip anyone, but I say it because it's true. Where you spend your time reveals the posture of your heart. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely... If you can't gather for worship with others on a weekly basis, that's saying something. It's revealing something about your heart posture and what you truly love. You see, sometimes... Time itself becomes an idol. Sometimes we worship it. Sometimes it's sleep. Sometimes it's work. Yeah, all those can become idols. I mean, if we can't find a way to commit 60 to 90 minutes of our week to a deep group, then maybe it's saying something about our heart posture. I, I know I might be stepping on toes right now. Sometimes what I got to do. Um, but I mean, is 60 minutes too much to give to the body of Christ? An hour, hour and a half, two hours. Is that too much to give to the church family? I don't know. Is your time an idol? Is your comfort an idol? Maybe your free time's an idol. Let me just, I want to be real for a minute. Is that okay? Uh, Lynn, can I get some permission to be real? (laughs) I knew you'd say, that's why I called on you. Here's the real, the reality. I know this might get some of y'all mad at me. Don't be mad at me. But like I've said since I started here two and a half years ago, I didn't come here to play church, right? I'm not here to play church. And so, man, if we can't, if we can't be here for 90 minutes on a Sunday or give 60 minutes during the week, if we can't give two to two and a half hours to our faith community, then how serious are we? Right? (laughs) What does that say about the posture, the disposition of our heart? Because some of y'all, when I or others might approach you, encourage you to be more present, maybe to join a deep group or something like it, man, sometimes I can kind of get a Laban response. Pastor, you trying to steal my God? You trying to steal my time, God, Pastor? My energy, God? (laughs) My rest, God? You trying to steal my freedom, idol? My free time idol, you trying to to steal my laziness idol? What you trying to do, Pastor? You trying to steal? What you done to me, Pastor? You trying to steal my idol? Yo, what I'm saying, I, I need you to know, I'm is coming from a place of just wanting good for this community and for you. And sometimes I got to stand up here and maybe tick people off. I don't know, but man, if I don't stand up here and have a little bit of backbone and a little bit of spine, and if I don't have commitment, if I don't have skin in the game, then I can't say anything. I can't open my mouth. But I do, (laughs) and I'm asking you for the same. Put some skin in the game, and let's do this thing. COVID's winding down. Let's do this thing. Take a minute today. I invite you. I encourage you. I implore you. Take a minute today and do an idle check. Maybe you're sitting on some idols. What's the posture of your heart today? Let's continue. Laban, Jacob answered Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought lest you should take your daughters from me by force. It's kind of confusing. We'll talk about it in a minute. With whom you find your gods shall not live. So whoever has your gods, if somebody among us, Jacob says, has your idol, they'll die they'll not live before our relatives just go ahead look through it what's yours is yours if there's anything here that's yours take it for Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen him. he opened his mouth he didn't know and so Jacob says that he left Laban out of fear he didn't want Laban to oppress him again it makes sense doesn't it may ever flee out of fear it takes a lot of courage when you're in an abusive relationship to finally get up and flee. And it may be fear-driven, but really there's courage in there too. Christy and I have been watching the show called Maid, M-A-I-D. And if you want a picture of just what that looks like, watch that show. It tells the story of this young woman who married her high school sweetheart. I think it was her high school sweetheart. And not too long after having a kid, he turns into a raging, abusive alcoholic and she's in and out of shelters. She loses everything. She loses her home, her kid, her car, her job, her family, and so on. But you see a cycle of sort of being in it and out of it and back in it and out of it. And while she's afraid, somewhere deep down, she taps into this courage that lets her find the strength to leave. This asymmetry. When there's that kind of imbalance, when you have nowhere to go, nothing to eat, no means to feed your child, it can be paralyzing. That kind of asymmetry, though, can also finally give someone the courage to get out of a toxic situation. And Jacob does just that. That's what he's he's doing here. As Jacob speaks, we find him unknowingly, actually, speaking a deadly curse over his wife, Rachel. Jacob had no idea that she took the Ishtar idol, the the fertility idol, the teraphim. And he says, if anyone from my caravan took it, they'll be cursed to the point of death. And sadly, it's going to play out in Rachel's life. You see, Rachel may have been taking it to help with her fertility. We're not explicitly told why. We can only infer. But if you recall, it was when she finally stopped her scheming and called on God that he opened her womb. You remember this. She called on God, trusted God. But now she has the fertility idol. And it seems that her trust in God has started to slip. Maybe she was trying to cover all her bases, get a blessing from the God of Israel and the God of Ishtar, the goddess Ishtar. But the reality is this, is her idols lead to death. That's the case spiritually and here physically. And so, what if you're holding on to your free time idol or your energy idol or your laziness idol or your I'm too busy idol or your I've got stuff to do idol or I've worked all day and I'm worn out idol? What does that lead to? What it leads to is not taking seriously the task of allowing God to grow you up within His family. It leads to spiritual stagnation, spiritual death, spiritual asthma. <laughs> Spiritual cancer. Yeah. Let's keep reading. Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he didn't find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered into Rachel's tent. And now Rachel, she had taken the teraphim and she put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban felt all around the tent, but he didn't find them. And she said to her father, don't let anger burn in the eyes of my Lord that I can't rise up before you. For I'm having the way of women. And he searched, but he didn't find the teraphim. And so Laban, he only is really searching the women. It's a clue that we're probably dealing with the goddess idol here. Leah, Bilhah, Zilpah, possibly his daughters too, and Rachel. It's like cold. You're cold, Laban. Cold, cold, warm, 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 very hot. Cold, freezing cold, right? That kind of thing. He gets close, but no cigar. And we have this curious statement from Rachel. Don't be angry. I can't get up. I'm having the way of women. That could be referring to her time of the month. Doesn't really explain why she can't stand up. Most women I know can stand up during the time of the month. Um, But more likely, she's far along in pregnancy. The way of women. And it's hard for her to stand up at this moment. She's put the idol in her camel saddle, which she's still sitting on. Perhaps the camel saddle is doubling as a couch or something. I don't know, a, a, a cushion. But I wonder... If this is a sign of Rachel too disrespecting her father, she doesn't stand in this man's presence again. She dishonors him by staying seated. And what we see next, if we pay close attention, it's like a mini court case that's coming up. It was like a formal way of settling matters in an almost legal way during this time period. So we're going to read a bit here. Look, Jacob was angry and he argued with Laban. And Jacob answered Laban, what is my trespass? What's my sin that you've pursued me? Now that you've felt around in all my things, what have you found in all of your household? Set it here before my relatives and your relatives that they may judge between us two. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not cast their young, and I haven't eaten the rams of your flocks. In other words, I've taken care of myself and you. That which was torn out of the animals I didn't bring to you, I bore it as my own loss. Of my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. This was my situation, in the day the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house, I served you 14 years for your two daughters, and 6 years for your flock, and you've changed my wages 10 times. If not for the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, that's another name for God, being with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. Jacob seems to have taken on the role of the defendant here, and Laban's, I guess, is the plaintiff. He's made accusations. He's, he's got to back them up. Jacob, he marshals his evidence. You've accused me, but you found nothing. You spent 20 years disrespecting me and using me. I'm over it, done. You put me in bad situation after bad situation. You did me dirty. You wronged me. You starved me. You put me out in the cold. You took, took, took. Two decades of it. You come here now threatening me once I leave. But God has sustained me. The same God who rebuked you last night. He has sustained me. He's seen my affliction. He's seen your abuse. Trust your fake gods your idols? Yeah, right. I'll continue trusting this God who's delivered me. And I don't know, but I assume that y'all can, can connect with this on some level or to some degree. I think that, that the reality for followers of Jesus is that when we endure hardship, our God does indeed see us. And he sees those mistreating us. And we can rest assured that he even goes to bat on our behalf. That God intercedes for Jacob here, doesn't he? By going to Laban in a dream. intercedes by confronting Laban, who seems to have had an intent to persecute or harm Jacob. But vengeance is the Lord's, in other words, and we need not engage in that violence. And if we do, in a way, it undermines God's willingness and ability to intercede for us. We get in his way, you hear me? Sometimes, not always, right? But sometimes, if we're facing trouble and wondering, man, where is God in all of this? If he seems absent, then it might be good to just pause, put it in neutral, and take stock by asking whether we might be inhibiting God's, God's interceding for us or his ability to intercede for us. Maybe we're getting in the way. That's why nothing seems right, and God seems absent. Maybe our actions are blocking or stifling the God who wants to take up for us. We're almost done. We press on here. Laban answered Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children. No, they ain't. The flocks are my flocks and all that you see is mine. Woo! What can I do today to these my daughters or their children whom they've born? Now come, let's make a covenant, you and I, let it be a witness between me and you. And so Laban just won't let it go. Y'all know people like that. Um, He's still claiming the people are his and the animals are his. He's saying everything Jacob has is his. He's a tyrant. And with his back against the wall, he tries to cut a deal with Jacob. He wants to cut a covenant. The same language that we saw used of Abraham earlier in Genesis. You'd think that Jacob would know better. Dude, don't make any more deals with Laban. Don't do it. (laughs) Asymmetry. But here's how the deal goes. So Jacob took a stone, set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his relatives, gather stones. They took stones. They made a stone heap, a pile of rocks. And they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it Yegar, Sahadutha. But Jacob called it Galib. There's the Aramaic there, right? And the Hebrew linguistic separation. It's as if now, at the end of this, they're speaking two different languages. They're not even like, yeah. They're on different wavelengths. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between me and you today. Therefore, it was called Galid and Mispach, For he said, Adonai watches between me and you when we're absent from one another. And if you afflict my daughters, (laughs) or if you take wives in addition to my daughters, no man is with us. See, God as witnesses between me and you. Kind of wordy. Um, In other words, it's just a deceptive Laban, this tyrant, this scumbag, oppressor, abuser, has the nerve to start all of this deal by saying, if you afflict my daughters. Wait, don't you remember the whole story so far? He had afflicted his own daughters for two decades. (laughs) You remember this? They said, just a few verses back, our dad has taken everything of ours. We're nothing to him now. So essentially, Laban's side of this deal is all fluff. He's an airbag. And he has more to say. And here's where we wind up the end of the story right here. And Laban says to Jacob, Laban speaking, See this rock heap. See the pillar which I've set between me and you. May this rock heap be a witness and the pillar be, the pillar be a witness that I'll not cross this heap to you and that you'll not cross this heap to me and this pillar to me for harm. They're setting up boundaries. This is good to do. Um, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. And then Jacob swore by the fear of his father. Again, fear is another name for God here. Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his relatives to eat bread. And they ate bread and they stayed the night on the mountain. And then Laban rose up in the morning and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. And Laban departed and returned to his place. This is so messed up, but it's one of the happier endings we actually get to see in Genesis, which is kind of sad that this is a happy ending. At the end of it all, Laban kisses the family, he blesses them, and he departs from them and look at what the text says about him he returned to his place oh i love that it's as if there's a place for people like him you know the old saying right there's a place for people like you he returns to his place padan aram the land of deception and idols it's where guys like him belong and jacob he's on the move away from that at least that's the way the story's told He doesn't pray or have any communion um, with the Lord for two decades. And then this. Two decades apart from God for Jacob. Two decades is a good chunk of time. You should think of all the coworkers and acquaintances and friends and family that we know who spent lifetimes, entire lifetimes separated from God. Decades. God's nowhere to be found in their lives. Although false gods and idols abound, they've lived lives of asymmetry, imbalance, elevated this little idol god over God, self over God, this person over God, this job over God, this dream over God. Uh, then the list goes on. When we're not being intentional about it, it's easy to drift. It's easy to look at what the wider culture is saying and doing and believing in the spirit of the age. The, the Germans call it the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, and they yield to the, the god of the age. Asymmetry. You know, I see a lot of bumper stickers around here on this island with the, the he is greater than I logo. <laughs> okay, fine, true. But it's not enough. yeah, you might be able to admit that God is greater than you. Okay, okay. But what about all the other stuff? Could you honestly put on a shirt or a bumper sticker that says, he is greater than my job? Or he is greater than my free time? Or he is greater than my laziness. Or he is greater than my desire to fit in. He is greater than whatever cultural fad is catching attention at the moment. He's greater than my sex drive. He is greater than drugs. He's greater than alcohol. He's greater than porn. He's greater than my worry. He's greater than my whatever. Can you affirm that his scripture is greater than your excuses? that his church is greater than your solitude? Or will you live a life of asymmetry, out of balance, maybe saying these things but not living them? Here's the bottom line. Asymmetry is often a telltale sign of idolatry. And when God looks at our lives and sees this asymmetry, that idolatry I think he's asking that same question to us that we've encountered numerous times in Genesis. What have you done to me? Michael, what have you done to me? So today, brothers and sisters, I invite you to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Do a heart-mind check. What's the posture of your heart today? Do an idol check. Are the things in your lives that are more important than or impinging on God is there asymmetry? Will you be like Laban and chase after your idols? Will you be like Rachel and sit on your idols and make them part of who you are, hoping that they'll bring some good into your life? Or will you start living in such a way that your banner truly is, He is greater than all? Amen. Let's stand. May bless you. If you would turn your hands upright and receive this benediction. And now, brothers and sisters, May you go forth and do an idol check today. May you go forth with the bold and honest proclamation that he is greater than all. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.